1964, Bob Marley, Bunny Livingstone, and Peter Tosh broke onto Jamaica's reggae scene with their first bonafide hit of Simmer Down. Over the next 10 years, Bob Marley would reach the precipice of international stardom, but the path to his ultimate goal will be filled with pitfalls. In the coming years, Marley would find his faith and begin growing out the dreadlocks that became his main identifying physical feature. He would also be forced to recognize the mortality of his god. Like many rock stars, he would come to blows with his friends over who deserved the biggest piece of the proverbial pie. Unlike most artists, however, Bob Marley would have to overcome these challenges while living in a third world nation which had just recently shed the yoke of British imperialism. Dr. Michelle Lemonis, writing for the Canadian Journal for Peace and Conflict Studies, points out that the British Empire ruled Jamaica with privilege and terror to extract profits and maintain control. It left behind a divided system of unequal gender, race, sex, and class so deeply entrenched that it ensures that violence in Jamaica is an everyday norm. He spent his entire life rejecting the epidemic of violence which permeated every relationship around him, explaining to any who listened that his heart bled when he saw violence and conflict in the world. Yet Bob Marley's rising stature drew the gangs of Jamaica like a moth to the flame. And by the end of 1976, he would be forced to confront his own mortality. But as he said, when one door is closed, don't you know, another is open. You're listening to Empire's Anarchy and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series is about Jamaica's most famous global export, Bob Marley. Episode number two, His Militant Years. Jamaica gained independence in 1962 just two years before Simmer Down hit the airways. Power was peacefully transferred into the hands of Norman Manley, who served as the premier alongside the nation's first prime minister, Alexander Bustamante, who happened to be Manley's cousin. Although they were family, they weren't on the same page, and their squabbles quickly tore the new nation apart. Both men were privileged as part of the island's mixed-race upper class. Bustamante formed the Jamaican Labor Party, or JLP, while Manley headed the New People's National Party, or PNP. There were some notable differences between the two parties, which allow us to designate the JLP as the political right and the PNP as the left. Those designations, however, were mostly for convenience, however, as the two groups acted in the same manner most of the time. They were both tied to labor unions, something that the Conservative Party wouldn't do in most other nations. They were also each tied to traditional gang activities. Journalist Casey Gon McCalla tells us that both parties would use gang leaders to help get votes and consolidate their power. Politicians called these men community leaders, but in the communities they led, they were called other names. They acted just like mafia dons, with the journalists explaining that just like the godfather on his daughter's wedding day, they would give out favors to members of their community, earning their respect and loyalty. Specifically, they used their political connections to determine access to jobs and housing. Since both political parties were playing the same game, maintaining power was paramount to the people's prosperity. Rather than representing everyone within the electorate, Jamaican politicians only took care of their own, 
You would likely be evicted from your government-run housing and government-provided jobs if your party fell out of favor. The result of widespread government housing areas meant that individuals didn't line up with which party suited them ideologically. Instead, they sided with the leader based upon geographic lines. As a child, Bob Marley lived deep within PNP-held territory of Trenchtown. In the decade of the 60s, he also would have been closer to them ideologically, as the People's National Party leaned heavily into the teachings of democratic socialism, which focused upon elevating the poor and suffering through government assistance. He also was fully aware that when the Jamaican Labor Party took power, its first act had been to bulldoze an impoverished PNP area, which contained a number of notable Rastafarians, known colloquially as Backo Wall. Simmer Down had been a direct message to the people of Jamaica to calm down before political violence in the streets escalated further. Control of the PNP passed from father to son, with Michael Manley being elected as prime minister in 1972. He immediately rewarded PNP supporters by displacing rival JLP voters. This cycle of never-ending tit-for-tat responses led historian Kareen Williams to note that by the 1960s, violence became institutionalized in modern Jamaican politics. This endemic violence fostered an unstable political environment that developed out of a symbiotic relationship between Jamaica's labor organizations and political violence. Consequently, the political process was destabilized by the corrosive influence of partisan politics, whereby party loyalists dependent on political patronage were encouraged by the parties to defend local constituencies and participate in political conflict. Marley tried to keep his head down and focus on his budding music career, one that had yet to produce sizable sums of money for the 18-year-old. Unfortunately, the Whalers were beginning to fracture along similar lines. Junior Braithwaite, the best singer in the group, left for Chicago to pursue other opportunities. Peter Tosh began to teach Bob and Bunny to play the guitar, but the boy band still relied on informal means to conduct their ventures. This included backing up other individuals who were associated with Coxton Dodd's Studio One. Rather than signing them to a contract, Dodd would pay them informally off the books giving them five or ten shillings whenever the young men asked for something. Two years into the deal, however, they had realized that they were being taken advantage of and sought to form their own label. They couldn't cut ties completely, however, as Dodd had the best studio in the technologically deprived city of Kingston. Historian Roger Steffen writes that, despite the later disagreements and acrimony, Coxton Dodd was a crucial figure in the Whalers' early breakthroughs and successes. He backed them with his very best musicians, picked interesting songs for them to cover, such as Tom Jones' What's New, Pussycat, as well as The Beatles' and I Love Her. And he actively promoted their records through his sound systems and on the radio. The group's collaborative writing method which included working on an ad hoc basis with non-band members from the streets of Trenchtown, made it difficult to determine who should receive the royalty checks. More often than not, Coxton Dodd assigned credit to Bob Marley. Bob not only wrote songs for the Whalers, he generously helped out any who seemed in need. He graciously wrote Buffalo Soldier for another Studio One artist named King Sporty. Incredibly, Marley's own version of the song didn't come out until after his death. Rolling Stone magazine points out that the anthem about African-American Civil War veterans being forced to fight against the land rights of Native Americans in the West has a chorus that bears an uncanny resemblance 
to the Banana Split's insanely hokey 1968 song, the Tra-La-La song. Clearly, Marley had a lot to learn about the industry. Locals began lining up shows around Kingston, and the way these early Whalers concerts are described is far different than the stadium shows that Marley would become famous for. Livingston, who was now utilizing his professional name of Bunny Whaler, describes the band's performance as being something akin to a poor man's Cirque de Soleil, with the boys acting as gymnasts, flipping around the stage in an unchoreographed manner throughout the act. Keep in mind that the boys didn't play their own instruments while performing, resulting in them chaotically dancing throughout to whatever vibe they felt in the moment. There was little planning or discipline when it came to their shows, as Peter Tosh recalled one show at the Ward Theater by stating that when you go up on stage, they love you. They stone you with the herb, money. One time when I was performing, all kinds of money came up on stage, by the hundreds. So I stopped singing and just go on and pick it up. I got two pockets full. Hits kept following, and in 1965, the Whalers laid claim to five of the top ten songs on the island's charts. Yet they still remained incredibly poor, as all the profits found their way into Dodd's pockets. Marley didn't go home empty-handed, however, as he met his only wife, Rita Anderson, during this point in his career. She was already the mother of two kids when she met Marley while performing as a member of the Solettes for Studio One. She had initially been invited to the studio by Peter Tosh, who fancied her. She, however, had her eye on the group's shyest member, Bob Marley. Bunny Whaler views Rita as the band's own version of Yoko Ono, who most blame for the early breakup of the Beatles. He and Peter weren't even invited to their bandmate's wedding after it was discovered that Rita was pregnant with Bob's child. I don't plan to go too much into Bob Marley as a father, because for the most part, he wasn't much of one. He definitely cheated on Rita with quite a few women. Some were spontaneous, lustful flings, while others were long-term relationships that Rita was fully aware of. This wasn't uncommon on the island of Jamaica, which has high rates of STDs due to the prevalence of multiple partnerships. Marley and Rita had three children, but the singer acknowledged producing eight other illegitimate children outside of marriage. Despite this, the two never separated, with Rita serving as an integral member of his band as a lead background singer. Despite the cheating, the two maintained their intimacy on a non-sexual level throughout their life together. But by the end, Rita described herself more as Bob's mother, rather than his wife. In addition to being a poor husband, Marley wasn't much of a father. This isn't entirely his fault. After all, his own father didn't play any part in his upbringing, while his touring responsibilities and rock and roll lifestyle wasn't conducive to being a good parent. He was a strict authoritarian, crossing the line at times and getting physical with both his wife and children. Still, there was love all around, with Ziggy Marley laughing about one instance where he recalls being chased around by his father, who beat him once the rascal had been caught only to immediately feel bad about it afterwards and take the boy out for ice cream. Bunny Whaler recounted his discovery of Bob's secret nuptials, stating that every Whaler had made a pledge not to get married until he could afford to, or never. So when Bob got married, he broke a rule of the Whalers. His mother didn't have knowledge of it either. Me and Peter were at Tots smoking some herb while rehearsing. A man comes and says that Bob's getting married in a church. He was trimmed up and looked different, 
like a man coming out of the army. Marley showed up three days later, explaining to his group that there are certain things that a man have to do, and he can't even tell his friends. In addition to Rita being pregnant, the impetus for a quick marriage ceremony was that Marley was headed to Delaware in 1966 to live with his mother in an attempt to make enough money in America to allow the Whalers to produce a higher quality sound in an attempt to reach audiences outside of Jamaica's shores. He would depart from his home for the first time as a clean-cut Christian married man. It was horrific timing for the man that he would become as he missed out on the chance to meet his future faith's prophet. It was Rita's brother who brought the Rastafarian faith to Bob's doorstep, and the Whalers were converted during Marley's absence from the group. His Rasta beliefs were central to Bob Marley's identity. So let me explain a couple of things regarding the Christian faith before returning to our main topic. Marcus Garvey was a Jamaican political activist living in New York City. He held black separatist ideas which culminated in his desire to lead a black exodus to Africa. It wasn't just talk for Garvey, as he had managed to launch a number of successful black-only businesses in order to cut the financial ties that were holding his people back. He even created the Black Star Line Shipping and Passenger Company in order to facilitate African-American migration to the free land of Liberia. Still, he was an incendiary figure who wasn't for everyone. He met with the head of the KKK in 1922 to converse about their shared hopes of separating the races from each other. He would go on to tell those who opposed him that I regard the Klan, the Anglo-Saxon clubs, and white American societies, as far as the Negro is concerned, as better friends of the race than all of her groups of hypocritical whites put together. I like honesty and fair play, he said. You may call me a Klansman if you will, but potentially every white man is a Klansman as far as the Negro in competition with whites socially, economically, and politically is concerned, and there is no use lying. His ability to lead disintegrated after he was convicted of mail fraud and sentenced to jail for two years. Recognizing his popularity, President Calvin Coolidge commuted his sentence and had the black separatists deported back to Jamaica in 1927. Garvey was a Catholic who attempted to transfer his black nationalist ideas through his faith, stating that whilst our God has no color, yet it is human to see everything through one's own spectacles. And since the white people have seen their God through white spectacles, we have only now started out, late though it may be, to see our God through our own spectacles. He never claimed any higher purpose, but others assigned one to him with some groups claiming that he was a reincarnation of Moses sent to part the ocean in order to deliver African Americans to their promised land of Africa, while others viewed him as a prophet sent to prepare the world, a la John the Baptist. In 1916, Garvey told his followers to look to Africa for the crowning of a black king. He shall be the Redeemer. Although he never joined the Rastafarian faith, his followers latched on to his words, and when Rastafari was crowned in Ethiopia in 1930, the movement had found its God. Historian Roger Steffens explains that the belief in the emperor's godhood was a result of Jamaicans interpreting Bible passages that foretold the second coming of Jesus, this time in his regal character of King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and conquering Lion of the tribe of Judah. The newly crowned emperor took each of these three titles, 
with the additional verbiage of elect of God tacked on to the end, while adopting the imperial name of Haile Selassie, which translated to the power of the Trinity. The London School of Economics warns that those who have solely learned about Selassie through the music of reggae stars and Teddy Afro may well have developed the impression that Selassie was a fatherly, benevolent ruler and a champion of blacks. However, this portrayal of Selassie and his predecessor, Emperor Menelik II, is grossly distorted. Garvey himself would later condemn Selassie as a great coward for fleeing in the face of Italian troops led by Mussolini. Ethiopia was an odd place for Western Hemisphere blacks to look for salvation as the nation didn't abolish the practice of slavery within its borders until 1942, 12 years after the emperor's coronation. Still, Selassie did offer the Rastafarian movement hope, granting them land to settle within the Rift Valley. At its peak, the settlement only reached 1,000 Rastas, who remain unassimilated with the London School of Economics telling us that today they live in isolation, much like the Amish in the United States. In addition to the belief in Selassie being the second coming of Christ, the Rastafarian faith refer to God as Jah, which stands for an abbreviated form of Jehovah, that one of the tribes of Judah was black, that the white church selectively edited the accepted version of the Bible to make it appear as though Jah and a number of his prophets were white rather than black, their affinity for smoking marijuana comes from the biblical use of the word herb in Exodus chapter 10, verse 12, and Psalms chapter 104, verse 14, which reads, He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, an herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth. Sadly, it doesn't have anything to do with reinterpreting the talking, burning bush story that led Moses to ascend to the top of Mount Sinai to retrieve the Ten Commandments. The Cannabis Museum of Amsterdam informs us that Rastafarians firmly believe that cannabis is a divine gift from God, possessing remarkable healing properties and aiding in meditation and spiritual connection. A number of faiths proclaim that man is created in the likeness of their creator, which results in many unorthodox Jews and Sikhs refusing to shave their beards. Like the Jewish kippah, Christian cross, Sikh kippahs, and the Islamic call to daily prayer, dreadlocks are an outward sign of their faith, identifying them to all that they encounter. The Rastafarian blog Lion Locks teaches us that dreadlocks in Rastafarian culture are known as the holy crown of hair, which represents a person's connection with his or her faith. Rastafarians believe that dreadlocks symbolize the strength of their connection with God. They take part in the Nazarite vow, which includes the practice of growing their hair into dreadlocks. All Rastafarians make this pledge which they interpret as being mandated by the Bible in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 5, which reads, They shall not make baldness upon their head, neither shall they shave off the corner of their beard, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. Their hair made Jamaican Rastafarians stand out. Their propensity to smoke herb made them criminals. Contrary to many people's assumptions, marijuana remains to this day illegal in Jamaica. The nation only lessened the harshness of its laws in 2015, decriminalizing small-scale marijuana possession and cultivation, as well as legalizing ganja use for religious purposes. But at this time in our story, the Rastas were outcasts and easy targets. Their possession of illegal cannabis was regularly used to evict them en masse from housing units, and their emphasis on non-conformity led the public to believe the worst things that were being said about them, 
including colonial beliefs of them as Blackheart men who fed upon little children. Police training schools even used their images to adorn their targets. This oppression only feeds their faith, however, something that Emily Bladder wrote about while attending Goucher College. She writes that the Rastafarian movement was born out of the Jamaican ghettos, where the descendants of slaves have continued to suffer from concentrated poverty, high unemployment, violent crime, and scarce opportunities for upward mobility. From its conception, the Rastafarian faith has provided hope to the disenfranchised, strengthening displaced Africans with the promise that Jah Rastafari is watching over them. While Bob Marley was in Delaware working as a lab assistant at DuPont, Bunny and Peter fully committed to live a Rastafarian life beneath the teachings of Trenchtown's Mortimo Plano. Emperor Haile Selassie I came to Kingston on April 21, 1966. Stefan tells us that Rasta camped out for days in advance at the Kingston airport, and the air was ripe with the smoke from thousands of chalices burning the holy herb. When the plane landed, the throng surged past the barriers and struck such fear into Selassie that he remained on board for nearly an hour before Mortimo Plano himself came aboard and urged him to show himself to the crowd. For Bob's wife, Rita, the emperor's appearance was a revelation, despite the fact that she only spotted him while his caravan drove past her. She vividly remembers seeing the man's stigmata marks, the signs of the nails that went into Jesus' hands when he was crucified on the cross. Through letters exchanged with her husband over the experience, Bob Marley was converted and began the long process of growing out his famous dreads. Whaler's songs during this period began to shift to include overt religious messages, and when Marley returned in 1968, the group would record Selassie is the Chapel, a song that wouldn't be released until 2023. Plano penned the lyrics, but Marley brought it to life, with Far Out magazine claiming that the track is an incredibly stripped-back recording with Marley inserting buckets of emotion in every word he sings, highlighted further by the minimalism of the instrumentation, which is limited to an acoustic guitar and light percussion. Despite being written decades ago, it's a beautiful song that seems appropriate for the current landscape, as it preaches peace to the world and invites people everywhere to take solace. Rolling Stone teaches us that the song takes its structure from Elvis's ballad Crying in the Chapel. Bob Marley returned to Jamaica after nine months living in America. The goal had been to earn enough money for the Whalers to start their own label in an attempt to gain leverage over their careers. Despite seeking control, he returned to chaos. Guns had begun to flood the island of Jamaica, and nowhere was worse than the capital city of Kingston and its slums. The ruling PNP government of Michael Manley had unintentionally gotten itself caught up in the Cold War. Manley was a self-proclaimed democratic socialist, something that many of my countrymen still confuse with communists. His cardinal sin was being overtly friendly with Fidel Castro's Cuba, which had established a communist beachhead in the Caribbean in 1959. The failed Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961 made it clear to the world that the U.S. wasn't willing to tolerate the existence of a Soviet Union-aligned country just 90 miles off of its coast. Gain McCalla teaches us that in American intelligence circles, Manley was compared to both Kennedy and Castro. His charisma, good looks, and oratory skills would make him a dangerous representative 
for both Jamaica and the Third World. Manley's nemesis, Edward Sega, was a viable alternative. Sega wasn't racist or classist. He was very generous and supportive to the poor black people who lived in his strongholds. However, Sega told American officials that he would not interfere in global politics and would welcome American business. He also had a long history of anti-Cuban and anti-communist rhetoric that fell in line with America's thinking. Unlike Manley, who seemed to be motivated by ideology and the desire for change, Sega seemed to be motivated by power. Rather than a second failed Caribbean invasion attempt, Gain McCullough alleges in his work inside the CIA's secret war in Jamaica that America's spy agency worked to systematically destabilize the nation by flooding it with illegal weapons while simultaneously sabotaging their economy. Such actions would likely bring down Michael Manley and refocus Jamaican policy inward for the duration of the Cold War. That was the bigger picture that served as the backdrop for Marley's homecoming. At the individual level, the singer reconnected with Coxton Dodd, who asked him point-blank whether or not he intended to still use the remaining whalers for the next recording. In his mind, Marley's departure had been a sign that he was ready to launch his solo career. That had never been his intention, and the out-of-left-field suggestion wasn't enough to break the three friends apart. Marley paid for the first session, which saw the Whalers record Bend Down Low and Freedom Time. Rolling Stone identifies Bend Down Low as a loose, buoyant jam with a rock-steady groove. The song also sees the student of Rastafari combining a light spiritual message over a sexy dancehall come-on. He assures a loved one he'll be faithful without judgment, regardless of sin. He would return to the song again eight years after the band's inevitable breakup. The record was the first beneath the group's own label, which Bunny Whaler describes as having been designed to show our three hands holding one another. It was called Whalen Solem and came out because Bob married a Solette's. So the Whalers and the Solettes were now intertwined, mixed, gone in a blood. It seems for the moment as though a little distance had mended all fences. Both songs were immediate hits. As his fame continued on an upward trajectory, Bob Marley carried on with more and more local women. The affairs were so brazen that Rita considered divorcing her husband but was talked off the ledge by a friend who reminded her that if she were to divorce Marley before he was rich and famous, she would be left with nothing. Everyone around the singer could see what he would become, but his failure to financially reap what he had sown was putting immense pressure on everyone within his circle. General George Patton once said that pressure makes diamonds, but those who are stuck within the vice oftentimes report feeling crushed by the experience. Marley was putting out hit songs, but seeing zero economic return. He was famous, which brought him attention that angered his wife. He was a new father, which forced him to confront the fact that his dad had been absent throughout his life. Steffens tells us that the pressure became so great that Marley abandoned the chaos of Kingston and returned to Nine Mile, his birth home. He brought Rita, Bunny, Vision, the singer who had replaced him in the Whalers during Marley's time in America, and Peter to help him farm and try to break through what was now a full-scale writer's block. It was a radical retreat for the always-engaged Whalers. At long last, Marley was reunited with his favorite donkey, Nimble, who hadn't forgotten him after all these years apart. Neville Willoughby was one of the few who managed to track down the reclusive group during this time period. He was a veteran broadcaster who ended up shooting a short film titled The Legendary Film of Bob Marley on the Donkey. 
During the day, the group would literally farm, turning up yams that they had planted themselves. They would then harmonize in the evenings from the top of the mountain. To urge forth their creativity, they played for each other songs by other artists, including the Beatles' Eleanor Rigby. The only surviving copies of that cover are very rough, but can be found on YouTube. Marley was obsessed with the song, and it served as a direct inspiration for his 1971 song, Sun is Shining. But just as things had started to turn around, Bunny was arrested for possession of cannabis. At the time, it carried an automatic sentence of 18 months, including a year of hard labor. As one important influence on Marley's life departed, another entered in the form of Danny Sims of Cayman Music Entertainment. Sims made contact at the farm and signed Marley and Peter Tosh as writers and recording artists while also extending the same deal to Rita Marley. The agreement was backed by Johnny Nash, an island reggae artist who would find fame beneath the self-proclaimed title of King of Reggae. The deal put Marley on a regular salary of $100 a week, but stipulated that Sims and Nash would own anything that Bob recorded during the contract. Bunny wasn't consulted while in prison. He despised the agreement. Sims wasn't surprised by the convict's concerns, pointing out that Jamaicans are very suspicious people, and they think all foreigners are thieves. What set Sims apart was his ability to record in Jamaica, but produce the tracks in England and the United States on more sophisticated equipment. The Whalers' previous songs had all been performed and produced as Studio One, which only had a three-track system, while the developed world had already moved on to 12-track technology. The unusual alliance between reggae artists was a two-way street, with Steffens explaining that Johnny Nash would go on to record a number of Whalers songs like Kama Kama, Stir It Up, Guava Jelly, Nice Time, Mellow Mood, Reggae on Broadway, and Rocket Baby. These songs were often America's first exposure to rock steady and reggae sounds albeit cleansed for foreign ears with much fuller arrangements. While Nash was recording Marley's written works, he was working behind the scenes with new vocal coaches, whose job it would be to clean up Marley's patois so he could be better understood by an international audience. They had to reteach him how to hold his microphone so that the audience could see his face. Incredibly, they even taught him to stand still while in the studio. Up until this point, Marley had recorded as though he was at a live concert, with one of his coaches remembering that he was just jumping all over the place. I had to teach him how to record properly. Those that interacted with him during this time saw a diamond in the rough, with one claiming that he had this charisma, this spiritual thing that's his voice. It's still there in every song I hear him sing. It's not musically perfect. It just seems to be an association with the earth. He's got this honest thing that just comes across. But this professional workspace wasn't an environment that the newly released Bunny Whaler could exist in. It would ultimately be the reason that the Whalers broke up and went their own ways. Apart from his friends, Marley spent the winter of 1970 in Sweden working on the soundtrack for a film that Johnny Nash was starring in. Songwriter John Bundrick lived within the same house that the studio had put Marley up in during this time. Bundrick had never heard of Marley before meeting him, and eloquently describes the difference between the two Jamaicans stating that out of Johnny's room came soft, sweet, dulcet vocal tones working on a ballad, often with a hint of a reggae feel, probably because it was usually one of Bob's tunes. Stir it up, dreamily, or comma, 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 come back here, my lady. Romance was oozing, and so were the girls. 
Out of Bob's room came the rawest guitar and vocal sounds my ears have ever heard. We rarely ever saw each other when shut away in our own rooms, writing and playing to heaven and earth, and occasionally hell. Although Bob was such a tremendous songwriter, singer, performer, and artist, I did occasionally wonder if he was ever going to tune his guitar, or just leave it like it was. Because with all the harmonics flying around the house, maybe he thought I was out of tune. Meanwhile, Sims worked behind the scenes to disentangle the whalers from Coxton Dodd, who had paid them what amounted to pennies for their work. They sued, but Jamaica's court system was fully controlled by the politicians, and the band's inability to produce a signed contract with Dodd meant that the courts continuously ruled against the whalers. In 1972, Bob returned to the island and agreed to put on a free show for the people, but when he heard that Mortimo Plano, the Rastafarian spiritual guide, had been charging for admittance behind his back, Marley refused to go on stage. Plano was in such a rage that he shouted out a desire to kill Bob Marley. Steffens describes what happens next to us, writing, Tipped off in advance as the car reached the edge of Nine Mile, a member of the feared Vikings gang stopped them and grabbed one of Plano's men and beat him, while the country people stoned the car with rocks. Bob had to beg them to stop and let Plano and the folks return to the city. It was a painful reminder of the violence that was inherent to his homeland. For many listeners, it is also an introduction to the many fabulous names that made up the gangs of Jamaica. The Vikings, as well as the Spanglers, were affiliated with Manley's PNP party, while the Phoenix and Shower Posse did the bidding of Edward Sega's JLP. There were also smaller groups on each side, such as the Phantom Jew Mau Mau, Pigeon, Idaho, the Untouchables, and the Hot Steppers. The Whalers eventually recognized that violence was the only way to get things done in Kingston and began to employ Alan Skill Cole as their enforcer. A friend of Bob's from the early days of the Whalers, Cole, a professional soccer player, would use brutal mob-like tactics to make sure that the radio stations were playing their music. Not wanting to know what was really happening, Marley turned a blind eye to what was being done on his behalf. Still, Cole was just having people roughed up. The political elite was putting them in body bags. Now with their music receiving consistent airplay, the band began to take some risks, with Stefan informing us that at this point, the Whalers decided they would do something no one in Jamaica had done before, a thematic album like the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper and the Stones' Satanic Majesties, whose subtext would be a pep talk by the group to itself to get back in the game. They also recorded all of their old work in an attempt to see if they could elevate the original quality. The work came out in an album titled The Best of the Whalers. It was also during this time that they rounded out the stable of musicians that would become a part of Marley's extended family of collaborators. Inspiration finally burst forth past his writer's block, and Marley was back to producing new music at record-setting paces. The Whalers' music was receiving a tremendous amount of airplay across the island, but they still weren't seeing the monetary fruits of their labor as a number of shady individuals remained ensconced within the process. From time to time, the Whalers put their toes into the toxic water of Jamaican politics. Growing up within the PNP stronghold of Trenchtown, their Rasta faith, and the fact that they were poor meant that the Whalers naturally leaned towards supporting Michael Manley. They performed at a number of his political campaign stops across 1971 and 72, but the band claims they did it for the money rather than signaling their endorsement. Wanting to sell their music to everyone, they never publicly chose a side. 
Still, everyone that knew the Whalers assumed that they were PNP supporters. The importance of affiliation was not lost upon the people who came out to their shows. Band member George Barrett explains that back in the olden days, if your laborite party's in power and they built a community for you with your house, the house is not yours. It's for the politicians and their supporters. So if you lose, the PNP comes and takes the house from you. So this is why you have to fight. Always have that fight with West Kingston against East Kingston. So if your party's out, pack up your baggage, man. This house is ours now. Although Danny Sims had been on the up and up, he had failed to find the kink in the pipe that was holding up the band's money flow. Chris Blackwell, a wealthy white Jamaican, was the next in line, promising that he could rocket the Whalers to international renown. Blackwell signed Bob away from Sony Music to his upstart label, Island Records. Stefan informs us that when the Whalers signed with Chris Blackwell's Island label, it seemed that they had finally found a champion who could bring them and their music to the outside world a culmination to 10 years of dreaming of becoming an international act. He advanced them 8,000 pounds to record an album. He also shifted from marketing them to the African-American audiences that they had thus far failed to gain traction with, instead realizing that in the 1970s they had a better chance of reaching white college kids. The guitar-heavy album of Catch a Fire was the result of the collaboration, the song Concrete Jungle is regarded as the best song off of the album. It proclaims for all to hear exactly where the group was from. It describes the Arnett Gardens Project, the Kingston stronghold for Sega's gangs. Rolling Stone tells us that the lyrics' sense of anger and desperation resonated globally, tapping the same ghetto angst coursing through American funk at the time. Another one of Blackwell's subtle changes to the band was discovered only upon the publication of the album cover, which features Marley smoking a large spliff, the Rasta's name for a blunt. The cover had altered the band's name from the Whalers to Bob Marley and the Whalers. Blackwell had come to the same conclusion as Sims, Nash, and Dodd, realizing that Marley was the Beyonce of the Whalers. The band stubbornly held on through the release of the album Burning in 1973, which was recorded during their tour of England. The group's performances and collaboration were as strong as ever. John Perellis, the New York Times music critic, chose Burning for a feature that asked, what was the one work of art within his field that would survive a hundred years in the future? In justifying his choice, he wrote that with Burning, Bob Marley became the voice of third-world pain and resistance, the sufferer in the concrete jungle who would not be denied forever. Outsiders everywhere heard Marley as their own champion. If he could make himself heard, so could they, without compromises. He finishes his thoughts by writing that in 2096, when the former third world has overrun and colonized the former superpowers, Marley will be commemorated as a saint. As wonderful as that praise was, note that it was all heaped upon Marley, without any mention of the Whalers. Blackwell blames his inability to work with Bunny as the main cause of the breakup. There's no love lost between the two, with Bunny claiming that he was voted out of the band that he had created. The straw that broke the camel's back was the fact that Blackwell had booked a number of high-profile gay clubs for the upcoming U.S. tour to support Bernie. Peter Tosh also wasn't a fan of this new direction, reportedly bringing a machete with him to one meeting with Blackwell. Despite their objections, the American tour commenced, but the act wasn't ready for the American spotlight. Joe Higgs, Marley's original music teacher, served as Bunny Whaler's replacement. He lists for us what went wrong, stating that the people said they can't hear us, they couldn't understand our accent, and our rhythm was too slow. 
We weren't happening and our outfits were inappropriate and we were rebels. All I can remember is that we were opening for Sly and the Family Stone and when he got to Las Vegas, we were fired. We had played five shows together. After returning to Jamaica, Peter Tosh departed the band, with Steffens noting that Peter believed Bob had betrayed the Whalers by siding with Chris Blackwell, and it happened because Bob was half-white. There was an old saying that if you're white, you're all right. If you're brown, stay around. But if you're black, stay back. Along those lines, he began to refer to his former producer as Chris Whitewell. Proclaiming that he wasn't a background singer, Peter Tosh set off to begin his own successful career as a solo artist. He claims that it was not a breakup, just a going of three different ways and sending the music in different directions. Marley seemed to be legitimately confused by what had happened, telling a journalist a year after the split that he was still a Whalers. Pressed with the fact that he had left the other two behind, Bob responded by asking the reporter, How come you know I left? Suppose they left me. In the confusion, Marley hired Don Taylor to be his new manager. The Jamaican hustler had previously been one of Marvin Gaye's co-managers. He would prove to be the worst of those who leached off of Marley's earnings. What followed was the most militant period of his recording career, with Roger Steffens recounting that in 1974, Bob released his first solo album, Natty Dread. Violence in the ghettos of West Kingston was raging out of control as tens of thousands of the professional class were abandoning their country and taking their vital capital with them. Democratic socialism, as envisioned by Prime Minister Michael Manley, had turned into class warfare and Rastafarians were often the victims of vicious police repression, blunting the hopes that their movement would become legitimized under a manly regime. Natty Dread was a militant masterpiece, in which he vowed to never make a politician grant you a favor, as they will only want to control you forever. Marley never viewed himself as a solo act, and he added his wife Rita, Judy Moat, and Marisa Griffins to the new Whalers band beneath the stage name of the I-3s. Rastafarians never utilized the term we, replacing its usage regularly with I. Stefan teaches us that from the time of the I-3s arrival, Marley's career took off on a constantly upward trajectory. Formerly a intensely masculine presentation, the new lineup of Bob Marley and the Whalers offered a visual and audible turn that many critics felt helped them reach a truly international level of showmanship. The money also began to finally flow, and Marley spent a significant chunk of his earnings to purchase Island Records' mansion on 56 Hope Road in Uptown Kingston. The sudden uptick in his finances, along with the move out of Trenchtown, led some to suspect that Marley was beginning to consider supporting conservative Edward Sega rather than Michael Manley. In reality, he just wanted to live in peace. 56 Hope Road was transformed into a commune where smoke, music, and a game of soccer could be found at all hours. In Marley's own words, the ghetto had moved uptown. Stefan claims that if one could penetrate the circle that gathered around Bob, glimpses into his creative process were everywhere. He was at ease at last because he had found a home. That peace was shattered on the night of December 3, 1976, when a hit was carried out two days before he was scheduled to perform at the Smile Jamaica concert. Right after Marley had scheduled the concert, Manley, the sitting prime minister, announced that the next election would be held a week afterwards. To everyone involved, it looked as though Marley was putting on the concert as a benefit for Manley's PNP. 
1976 had been a particularly violent year in Jamaica, with Manley declaring a state of emergency while offering thinly-veiled criticism which suggested that the CIA was illegally working to topple his regime in retaliation for his public support towards Cuban troops which had traveled to Africa in defense of Angola versus the U.S.-backed apartheid state of South Africa. In May, 500 were left homeless after a PNP housing complex was destroyed via Molotov cocktails. Gain McCullough reveals that a former JLP organizer, Herb Rose, would defect from the party in early June of 1976. He revealed that the JLP's political strategy was based on violence, arson, and murder, and that he had seen top JLP leaders giving out guns to kids. Bob Marley was caught in a catch-22. People were accusing him of helping the PNP by performing at the concert, but if he were to cancel the show, he would then be helping their rivals. Hoping to live up to his uplifting song, Smile Jamaica, Marley planned to perform at the concert in hopes of once again helping Kingston to simmer down before it destroyed itself. No one knows who precisely ordered the hit on Hope Road. Sega is a likely candidate, as the concert had been manipulated to help his political opponent on the eve of an election. Yet others blame Manley, who would go on to use the attack as propaganda against his opponent, allowing him to extend the state of emergency to include the election. Still others, such as Gain McCalla, believe that the attack was the heavy hand of the CIA beneath the command of its director, George H.W. Bush. While Michael Manley had offered thinly-veiled criticism at the agency's actions upon his land, Marley called them out by name in his song Rat Race, proclaiming that Rasta don't work for no CIA. Bob Marley would go on to publicly claim that he knew who it was, but that secret unfortunately died with him. On the night of December 3rd, one of two cars drove through the property's closed iron gate. The JBL gang members that Marley had been paying for protection while he lived within their turf had mysteriously abandoned their posts. Seven or eight men, armed with machine guns and pistols, slammed into the house and went from room to room firing wildly. They left the property riddled with bullet holes. Tyrone Downey was there and explained that at the moment when the gunman broke in, we were rehearsing I Shot the Sheriff. Bob had stepped out because the horns weren't on that record and the horn players wanted to play on it, so we were working on all the horn parts and Bob got bored from hearing the da-da-da. He came out of the rehearsal room and went into the kitchen to get a grapefruit or something. Don Taylor, his manager, had just arrived and went round there to talk to him. Thank God they both went round there, because right after that, there was just pure shot. You hear start firing outside, and all of a sudden, you see a hand come through the door, like around the door, and start firing this 38 caliber. At first, it was blindly. We all hit the ground and just headed. The only way we could go was towards the bathroom. And we went in there, and we were just waiting for them to come in and finish us off. And we were waiting, and then Bob runs in, and then I say, oh shit, this is it. They're gonna come in here and just finish us off. And then we heard a car driving out, which was Rita, Bob's wife. And then a shot was fired, and then after a while, the shot stopped. And then they left. In a desperate attempt to escape the bloodshed, Rita had crashed her car after having a bullet graze her head. After the gunman fled to the scene, she courageously shook the wound off and returned to the house to inquire whether Bob was all right. It was only once she opened the bathroom door to find five grown men terrified for their life in the bathtub together that they noticed that Bob had blood on his shirt. He had been hit. His manager, Don Taylor, had it worse, however, with Downey finding him lying on the floor. The horn player recalls his shock in the moment, loudly proclaiming that Don is dead, before then stating for all to hear, I'm going home, fellas. 
Incredibly, no one was killed in the attack. Rita was checked into the hospital for recovery. Don Taylor was placed in critical condition, but recovered. And Bob was treated for a bullet that had grazed his chest and lodged itself in his left arm. The doctors bandaged him up, but left the bullet embedded where it lie per his request after the doctors had informed him that if they were to take it out, Marley might not ever again be able to play the guitar. Rumors swirled in the aftermath. There was no attempt at keeping the incident quiet, as Prime Minister Michael Manley rushed so quickly to the hospital that he was able to glimpse Marley covered in blood from his wounds. Some claimed that the perpetrators had been quickly hunted down, and that Marley had been summoned from his hospital bed to personally watch their gangland execution. But that flies in the face regarding every single thing we know about the unending well of forgiveness that he displayed throughout his entire life. Some questioned whether it was really an assassination attempt, as one of the gunmen seemed to hesitate before shooting the musician, shifting his aim to target a less lethal shot. Others wondered if the corrupt Don Taylor had been the target, or perhaps Alan Skill Cole, who had recently been caught in an attempt to fix a horse race. Questions were immediately raised about whether the concert should be called off, but Marley remained silent on the issue right up until the very last moment. Jeff Walker had been hired to film the event. He told Marley that he saw no alternative than for him to go down and perform, pointing out that if this concert was canceled, that everything they had intended to do by shooting him would have been accomplished, and that would have been to stop the music. He recalls Marley responding, there's no way I'm going on stage without a machine gun, to which Walker responded that your guitar is your machine gun. He then volunteered to stand up on stage with him if Marley decided to perform, a pledge that was echoed by every single person around him. Lifting him up with their gesture, it seemed clear that Marley would perform. Until his wife Rita, with her head still bandaged from a gunshot wound, walked into the impromptu meeting to shut it all down. She had stolen a car from the hospital in order to return to Hope Road, just in time to try to change his mind. Carl Colby was among those hired by Walker to film the concert. The fact that he happened to have been the son of a former director of the CIA fueled a lot of the conspiracy theories that the assassination squad had been hired on their behalf. Completely unknown to Marley, the American would bear witness to the moment that the singer decided to risk his life by performing just two days after his world had been completely turned upside down. Colby claims that at some point we went outside and there was this incredible view of Kingston from there, and the sun was setting and there were these four or five friends of his, maybe band members and whatever, Rasta, dreadlocks and all. It was just an incredible shot. He was holding, in a sense, the whole weight of their legend on his shoulders and around him, and you could almost feel that he wanted a more light environment. He wanted something a little happier, a little lighter, not so everything was heavy. He spoke about that. He spoke kind of about fate and how things are in the world. Not pessimistic, but rueful. He reminded me of Bob Dylan. A lot of sense and a lot of world. Lots of experience, like a wise man way beyond his years, far older than his age. At some point he was outside, and then his car shows up, and we're talking also about how you're going to do a concert and everything. And he goes, oh, you know, whatever. Everyone on the island knew what had happened as the attack was reported on every channel. Still, 80,000 gathered at the site of the Smile Jamaica concert. The decision to go had been made instantaneously, and Rita didn't even have time to get dressed. 
throwing a robe on over her hospital gown and placing a wool hat over the bandages covering her head wound. Rather than taking her stolen car, she jumped into a car with Tony Spaulding, the lead enforcer for Manley's People's National Party, a police officer, and her husband. As they neared the venue, the officer began to ominously load his 357 Magnum. The son of the former CIA director followed the group with a defective camera, having sent back the good equipment after hearing that the musician had been shot. The venue wasn't prepared for his sudden arrival at literally the last minute, and thus the lighting on the recordings is tragically horrific even for the 1970s. There was no warning. He just arrived at the venue, was rushed onto the stage, and then began the show. He was surrounded on the stage by his friends, all of whom claimed that they were prepared to take a bullet for him if the cowards decided to come back in an attempt at finishing the job. Due to the fact that he was still recovering from a bullet wound, he was unable to play the guitar. His intention was to sing just one song, an appearance that would signal his defiance to those who wanted him dead but stayed upon the stage for a performance that lasted 90 minutes. He began the set with a medley of War, No More Trouble, and Get Up, Stand Up. He would play a part of 15 of his songs. Rather than making the focus upon hatred, he managed in that moment to continue spreading his message of love and forgiveness. Colby recalls for us one of the few statements made by Marley during the performance, as he almost never made conversation between songs. The cameraman states what it was like to be in the man's presence, stating that he said to everyone, greetings, or something like that. And then he ripped his shirt off and he said, they tried to do this to me. They shot me here, and they shot me here, and they grazed me here with his shirt off. And it's like you're seeing Jesus Christ on the cross or whatever. And they did this, and they did this, but they can't stop me. And he started dancing like that, and he went on for like an hour. He just started dancing. Born in a gutter, abandoned from birth by his father, overlooked by his mother, separated from his friends, forced to live and represent a nation that was torn apart by drugs and violence. Bob Marley had managed to get up on a stage two days after nearly dying and sing out the words of positive vibration, telling the 80,000 assembled that you just can't live that negative way. If you know what I mean, make way for the positive day, because it's a new day. The best was to come for Bob Marley and the Whalers, as the news of his heroic performance would finally propel him to heights that had previously seemed unimaginable for an artist hailing from the Third World. We'll examine this period of peace, love, and happiness in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.